it's a real privilege. Hopefully this has been helpful to you as well. Um, and it's really great just to end off this morning and looking at our devotion to Jesus. It's the most important thing, I think, in the world. How are we devoted? And uh, I want to ask you, though, before we do that, what are you devoted to? Because you can be devoted to lots of things, can't you? Um, we all know the Christian answer is to Jesus. That's what we trained in kids' church to do. I know your church is kids church, probably more nuanced than that, and every answer isn't Jesus. But go around the world, most kids' church questions are, the answer is Jesus. You're pretty safe on that one. But, but how do you assess what you're devoted to? What's the assessment of our true devotion? We want Jesus to be our, the most devoted thing, do we not? And a, a pastor once went to a church to help them out, and he, he said, okay, what's your priorities as a church? And they listed their priorities, and missions was high up, and other things like that. And they said, okay, let, now show me your budget, and we'll, we'll compare what you say is your priority to how you spend your money. Because often how you spend your money or how you put your focus and your energy, what you spend time on, what your emotional connection is to. It's a better view of your devotion than, than what you say. We often, our hearts trick ourselves, if they're not. And they, they realize they had a disconnect in their, between their budget and their priorities. Jesus doesn't mind us enjoying hobbies, doesn't mind us spending time building a career or raising a family. These are actually good things. It just becomes a problem if we're more devoted to that than, than Jesus. If we take something created and make it higher than our creator, and I know you know this. Terry Virgo said this, we continue to make choices based on what we value. We spend time, money, and energy on what really matters to us. Ask yourself, what value do you place on fellowship with Jesus? And this is a guy who's I've met a number of times. He found a new frontiers, which advanced burned out of. He really lives this out. His, his son said he'd wake up and just hear his father in the lounge singing 6 a.m. every morning. He's just personally devoted to Jesus. His, people have been in hotel rooms next to him, and they've, they've heard him singing through the walls as he's just devoted to Jesus. On his day off, he, people ask him, what do you do on your day off, Terry? You know, pastors get an extra day off. It's part of the perk of the job. You get that. Yeah, that, that Monday or the Friday as well as a Saturday and Sunday. No, I'm, I'm joking. I mean, Sunday's supposed to be a working day, isn't it? That's the, but they asked him, what do you do on your day off? And he said, well, I do what I love to do. I get up and I sing to Jesus. I'm devoted to him. I love him. So what, what do you do in, in our situation? How do we ensure our devotions are ordered correctly? We can't all be professional Christians where you get a day off to worship Jesus, you know. But it's not about time, is it? Because everyone's got enough time to do what they're devoted for. How do we ensure, though, our devotions are ordered correctly? So on this, on this final encounter, we're going to look at Mary Magdalene meeting the glorified Jesus right after his resurrection. We're going to ask the question, how's your devotion to Jesus? Mary had been with Jesus through the miracles, the healings she part-funded, his ministry. I don't know if you ever noticed this. The, the 12 disciples are often quite poor, apart from Matthew, the tax collector. A lot of them came from working-class backgrounds. But middle-class or upper-class women seemed to travel with Jesus, and they funded a lot of the ministry. I think you had the wife of one of Herod's stewards in that, in that group. And Mary Magdalene was one of those women that, that helped fund the ministry. But here we see her being present, not during the great highs of the healings and the deliverances that we've seen you know, in the previous sessions today, here she is at his darkest time. 
during his death and burial. And what's the reward for her devotion for being there? She gets to be the first human being to ever see him rise from the dead. Her story asks us a challenging question. Are we devoted enough to Jesus to stick with him through the the dark times as well as the, the good times? We're going to read Matthew chapter 27 to look at her story. It starts at verse 57. It says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. I'm going to skip on now to the next chapter. It says, Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord has descended from heaven and came back and rolled the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and began like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb and with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this narrative. A section of it often gets taught and preached over, over Easter. We read it through, through those, those, those weeks. Here we have a wealthy disciple, because Jesus had all sorts of disciples, rich, poor. A wealthy disciple says, Jesus needs a proper div- a burial. But because the death was a, a capital execution, a state execution of a criminal, he had to go to the governor to get permission for the body. What happens next is the section I skipped. I don't know if you, if you know the story, but the Pharisees come and just go, hey, hey, it's fine he gets to bury him, but we want to put guards on the tomb because he's been telling everyone that he's going to rise from the dead. So we want to make sure that doesn't happen. And no one can claim that it's happened because they steal the body or something like that. So we're going to put guards there. Father goes, sure. And then the section I then read is that Mary and the other Mary go to the tomb. See, in writing this way, Matthew is setting up his readers to, to see that there was this great expectation, at least from the Pharisees and from what Jesus had taught, that he might rise from the dead. And the Pharisees didn't believe it, but they just knew that it was something he'd said. And Matthew's telling his readers, this is what the expectation was with them. Also, it was a negative expectation, maybe. And the tension in the story is, will he or won't he rise? See, the Pharisees don't believe he will. They want to make sure that he doesn't. But you see, there's another group of people who may be asking that question. Look at verse 16 61. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. What were they waiting for? What were they looking at the tomb for? Why, did they, why were they there and no one else? 
Were they asking the same question the Pharisees are asking? Will he rise from the dead? What's stark in this narrative? You notice who's missing from this story. We've got the Pharisees, we've got Jesus, we've got Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Who's missing? Yeah, where are the 12 disciples? Peter, I'll, I'll stick by you. Even if these others depart, where is he? You see, there's a big contrast. The religious leaders dismissed the possibility of Jesus rising from the dead. The disciples who were told he would rise from the dead aren't showing any interest in the question, it seems. But the two Marys are watching, and we're left wondering, are they the ones asking that question? So what happens next? The next day, the Pharisees still have their guards stationed to ensure that any false resurrection can't happen. The disciples are still absent. And guess who returns to the tomb? This is the Easter Saturday. It's the two Marys. And their devotion is rewarded. Because as we know, he did rise from the dead on that Easter Sunday morning. And everything Jesus said would happen suddenly has a whole lot more credibility. Christianity rises and falls on one simple fact. Jesus rose from the dead. If this is false, we're all wasting our time. If it's true, it changes how we see life in every single day. And I want to just help you with an apologetic here. I remember hearing about Tim Keller in New York. He was talking to unbelievers after the service. It was his habit. And he get loads of questions. And then he got one question around, hey, what about your view on homosexuality and stuff like that? And he's quite clever with his response. He said, look, I'm happy to answer that question, but do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Because you see, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept what he says about sexuality. But if he doesn't rise from the dead, it's a waste of time having this question, because who cares what Jesus said? He's just a, just a normal guy who died. And it's helpful when you're discussing the apologizing for the faith to keep the central thing central. Did Jesus rise from the dead or not? If he did, then what he says matters a huge amount. But if he didn't, it doesn't really matter. I've got a quote from Tim Kelly. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs on is not whether you like his teachings, but whether he rose from the dead. The Bible always challenges you on something. Every culture in the world has to accept the Bible will affirm something in their culture and it will frustrate or anger something in your culture. You've all got a culture. You grew up with values and there's been absorbed by your parents and the way you grew up. You know, in the Arabic world, the question about Jesus being wrathful and judging people isn't a question. Of course God would be like that. If Jesus is God, that's what God does. He judges us. But the question about it being loving and forgiving, that's quite a challenge in an Arabic culture. It's the complete opposite in, our, in Western culture. But every culture in the world has something the Bible will challenge and something it will affirm. And you've just got to accept that's normal. When it comes to reading through the Bible, there'll be stuff that will frustrate you, maybe anger you, you say it's not right. And there's others, you go, yes, I like this, this is great. That's just the way it is. And we just let the Bible set our worldview. There's going to be some adjustments. Anyway, we're moving on. What I love about this contrast is what we see next. While these tough, macho Roman soldiers, these are the guys that were the, you know, the, the G.I. Joes of their day. They're on their faces in fear. Do you notice this? The angel appears. It's the guys with the swords 
are on the floor in fear, and these two Marys are standing chatting to the, to the angels, face to face. It says, verse 4, says, the Roman soldiers are like dead men. And it just changes things, doesn't it? If you understand the spiritual realm, it's a very different view of what life's about and what's fear. And the, and the angel gives them a command to inform the disciples what happened. So if you were one of Jesus' disciples, where would you be over this time? Would you have joined the disciples in hiding? We're told that they had their room locked for fear of the Jews. Because they thought well, if they killed our leader, they might kill us next. It's a very natural human thing, isn't it? Would you have been with the Marys, devoted to Jesus in death as in life? You get a clue to the answer by your own past. What have you done during difficult times? Have you stayed faithful to Jesus? Have you been devoted to him? Or have you just moved away a bit and then come back when life's a bit better? The result of the two Marys' devotion is this. They become the first people to meet the resurrected Jesus. And what's amazing, if you look at verse 9, it says, now they bow down. They didn't bow down at the angel, but they bow down at Jesus. It says they worshipped him. The account of the resurrection is fascinating because we look at it from a heavenly point of, point of view. It's very different to what's going on on earth. See, on earth, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they received the wealth, the recognition. They got the seats of honor in Jewish society. But Jesus said they were spiritually dead, not worthy of leading anyone. Whitewashed tombs, he called them. And they, were so, they should have been more concerned with their own whitewashed tomb and the deadness inside than they were trying to keep a dead man from rising to the dead. Later, Peter, James, and John were going to be remembered and get huge honor and glory on earth. Countless churches are named after them. There's St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. I haven't been to Rome, but it's a monument to Peter's faith. I've got a, a, picture, a few pictures. I mean, it's quite an incredible building. If you look at the next one, the detail, the money's been spent on this. And inside, just how huge it is. This place is dripping with gold. And, and this is to remember... Peter's great faith. But that hasn't happened yet. He hasn't demonstrated that huge faith because he hasn't died for his faith, hasn't gone on against persecution after persecution. After. At this point, he's just a scared teenager hiding in a room. But in the moment of the resurrection, we see three things. We see the fear of the disciples. We see the faithfulness of the two Marys. And we see the fraughtness of the Pharisees. Did I pronounce that right? Because <laughs> they were dead, dead inside. Look good on the outside. Inside they were dead. You can come to church and look good. You can do all the Christian stuff. But unless Jesus has changed from the inside out, there's a deadness in you. So what does all this mean? Because I've, I've gone into the detail of the story. But what does it mean for you and I right now, 2,000 years later? Well, there's always the, the warning, don't be like the religious leaders and just act your Christianity using religion for financial gain or get focused on politics and jostling for power and position. Don't do that. But then there's a warning. Don't let fear get a grip of you. So the disciples missed out on, on seeing what Mary saw. Fear is a terrible thing. It paralyzes, it chokes us, it gets in the way of faith. We need to be people who deal with fear early and quickly. It's no problem to be tempted with fear, but don't let it get a grip on you. Because fear and faith, they're, they're opposite to each other. You just think what miracles we missed out on because maybe our focus hasn't been on Jesus, but it's on fear. 
what have we missed on God doing because we weren't brave enough just to speak to that person. Meanwhile, Mary has patiently been devoted and attentive and watching on. There's a lot to ponder. I want to focus specifically on Mary Magdalene because if you notice, the author says Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Whenever an author goes and the other Mary, he's really focusing in on the, on the other one, on Mary Magdalene. And it, no one knows what she looked like, what she was like. She was quite wealthy. I, I got a painting by uh, a Dutch painter in the 16th century, Jan van Skorl, and this was his impression of what Mary looked like. She looks a bit too Western European for my liking, but, you know, she may have been that white. I, I doubt it. See, we don't have much of a backstory. All we know is she was independently wealthy, and quite wealthy that she could splash it around and be generous. And we don't know what, what happened, where she got her wealth from. But we do know Jesus delivered her from seven demons. So she had, she had a past. Seven's quite a lot, isn't it, you think? Later in the 6th century, Pope Gregory I, he confused her with Mary Bethany. It's another Mary in the Bible. And she was a prostitute. So since then, people have thought that she must have been a prostitute. But it's just a confusion with Mary Bethany. I mean, my personal view is maybe she's a fortune teller or a medium, and that's how she got wealthy, and that's also why she needs deliverance from seven demons. We just don't know. But what we do know is she's experienced Jesus' authority over the evil realm, and she's, she's experienced true freedom. And after that, she's like, I'm, I'm sticking by this guy. The next mention we get of her is at the crucifixion. And this time, there's three Marys. Jesus' the, Jesus' mother, also called Mary, joins them. So you've got three Marys looking on. Mary was the most popular Jewish name at that time. In our church, we've got eight Michelles. My wife is called Michelle, and there's a whole lot of other Michelles, and one of my other elders will be cheeky sometimes. He'll say, Michelle, in church, and everyone turns around. <laughs> but it's just one of those names. Mary is a popular name. After watching the crucifixion, she's there on the Sabbath, Easter Saturday, and then she's there back on Sunday morning. See, the sad thing is that many people know about the crucifixion of Jesus, but not many contemplate it like Mary did. They don't sit there and, and ponder and wonder what it's all about. Remember, there's a, a Greek evangelist called J. John in the UK. He's a canon in the Church of England. And he was telling this story. He, go, he went to a supermarket, and the, he always tries to find ways to talk about Jesus with people. And he just saw at the checkout, the lady had a little gold cross. And he goes, oh, that's interesting. What, what, what's the cross in significant for you and she told why it was significant he said you ever found it strange that we wear these instruments of torture around our neck and emboss them in gold she goes what do you mean she said well the cross was a torture it was the romans torture treatment it's how they kill people he said we don't wear little gas chambers or little electric chairs on our necks do we and it, it's it's true we get so removed from the situation that we we beautify something gross because we know what it means, but not everyone knows what it means. I'm going to turn to John's gospel now because it expands the story a little bit more and fills in some other blanks. So John chapter 20, verse 1 to 11, it says this. Now on the first day of the week, he's telling the same story, different perspective. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. So this is Sunday morning. And saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. 
Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. For his reason, it was my daughter to be going, he seems to be flexing here. Because <laughs> you all know who the other disciple is. It's the guy writing the book, isn't it? He, he won the race. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did, he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, following him, he went straight into the tomb. You know, Simon's that sort of guy, I'll, I'll go straight in. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and he believed For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Still, they don't understand. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood there weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stooped to look in the tomb. So the question is, why is Mary weeping? She's been contemplating all weekend what's going on. And she sees that Jesus isn't there, and she cries. She tells the disciples, they've taken his body. All this happens before, in Matthew's account, she meets the angel who tells her Jesus is risen. And when she speaks with the angel, she asks what's happened to the body. She still, she sees an angel and still doesn't think that Jesus could have risen. We get even more detail now in verse 14. When, she, when it shows us she becomes the first person to meet Jesus. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to a woman... Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to to the Father, but go and tell my brothers. And say to them, I'm ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. What an incredible encounter. Wouldn't you have liked to have been there? Jesus rewards Mary's devotion by revealing himself to her first. But did you spot what's happening? John's account shows that even Mary didn't expect him to rise from the dead. So at the start of the session, I asked, who was asking the question, is he going to rise? And it looks like actually no one was asking the question. She wasn't there, present, full of faith, expectant for the miracle, just waiting for it to happen. You know, in the, in the year 2000, someone put a webcam on the Mount of Olives because they're like, I'm going to see when Jesus returns. I'm going to the, have the webcam there. He's going to come on the Mount of Olives and do this wasn't what Mary was expecting. I mean, it's a foolish thing, isn't it, now? But She wasn't there going, I'm going to go to the tomb because I'm going to see him rise. Because, you know, he's, he's, he rose my brother. It is, I think it is Mary Magdalene's brother that was Lazarus. There's some, I don't know if that's right or not. I've read it recently. But she should have heard of all the resurrections, surely. So maybe, why was it not in her mind? Maybe I'll go to the tomb and I will see him rise. But no, she goes to the tomb because she just loves the guy. She's devoted to him in life and in death. She's not expecting he's going to rise. She's weeping because he thinks someone's stolen the body. This isn't a story of giant-sized faith of Mary. We're not going to say, look at the faith of Mary. We're going to say, look at the devotion of Mary. 
Because this is a trick we learn from Mary, is when your faith is low, you can still press into Jesus with devotion, and your devotion wins through. How do we apply all of this? What we learn from Mary is that when there's pressures in our life, it may mean that our faith isn't how it should be. We get strains and we're not in a good place. We just, we just press in with devotion. There were times this year or next year, we don't feel like coming to church on a Sunday or you're going to your small group in the week or going to the men's or women's ministry or whatever events that the church puts on to, to help disciple you in the faith. You may not feel like it, but can I encourage you to press in with devotion? When your faith is low, you can still do great if you're devoted. There will be times when fear gets a grip on us and we don't know what to do, but you press in with devotion like Mary and Jesus will stick close to you. It was Mary's devotion, not a faith, that gave her an opportunity to meet with Jesus face to face. As we devote ourselves to him, it creates an opportunity for him to engage with us and give us what we, what we lack. What about you? There may be things that Jesus is saying to you that are missing. He may have said things to you in the past you don't have much faith for. The solution is to keep coming back week after week. Keep opening the Bible. Keep reading it. Keep following Terry's example and getting up early and singing to Jesus. Because it's in response to the devotion that Mary saw Jesus. And at this point, you'll be thinking, well, this isn't good news. You're just telling me I've got to do stuff. It just can feel heavy sometimes when people say, you've got to do this. I don't know if you ever watched the Alpha course where Nicky Gumbel, he, um, he gets saved at Cambridge University, and then he gets given a whole load of books, and he says, you've got to read these now. He goes, okay. And so, by the way, you also got to have pray every day. You've got to worship Jesus every day. You've got to go to church. You go, oh, this wonderful, great news I've discovered. It just feels like a whole lot of stuff I've got to do. How do we get through this feeling of we've got, to, we've got to work, we've got to be more devoted, we've got to press in, it's all on us? Because the problem is when things are all on us, we don't do so well, do we? The way to win through on devotion is to experience Jesus being devoted to you. It's interesting that it was the lady that had huge experience of freedom from Jesus that wanted to stay by him. She'd known the torment of evil. she encountered the goodness of God. The difference was black and white. I'm not saying go experience evil so you can understand the good. But I'm saying that you've, you've got to allow Jesus to minister to you. And then in response, you want to minister to him. Mary didn't know, but over the weekend, he was showing his greatest devotion to her. His death was setting her free. It was the reason that he had authority over the spiritual realm and could set her free in the past. John 15, verse 13 says, Greater love is no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus was showing his devotion to Mary. And we'll only be devoted like Mary if we really allow Jesus to, to show us what that's like. There's times in my life when I don't feel very devoted. But Jesus has sent his spirit to help us. And the solution, you repent of your lack of devotion. You don't try harder. Even in your lack of devotion, you don't want to read the Bible. Do you know what happens when I don't want to read the Bible? Say, Jesus, I don't want to read the Bible. 
I'm so sorry. Please can you help me have a love for the Bible? I've learned, don't try in your own effort. Repent and allow Jesus to give you passion and devotion and love because it's Jesus' love that was poured out to us on the cross. And when he goes to ascend us to heaven, he then sends his spirit and it's through that we can experience God's love. He's constantly, constantly wanting us to know his deep love for us. And it's the love that changes. It says it's perfect love drives out fear. If you're fearful, you don't say, I must try not to be fearful. He said, Jesus, I need your love to drive out this fear. So the question we've been asking is, how's your devotion to Jesus? I don't mind what your answer is in many ways. But you just need to know what it is yourself because then you know what to do with it. If your devotion's low, you say, Jesus, please help me. I want to be devoted. I don't know how. The disciples said, teach us to pray. It's probably one of the best things they ever asked Jesus because they recognized their poverty. Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. You know, the great Beatitudes. There's a blessing in knowing you need help. The Pharisees didn't know they need help. They were slowly rotting inside. But if we come in humility, saying, I haven't got it all together, I need help. Please help me be devoted, Jesus. I don't know how to do it. If you come to your church leader and say, I don't know what to do, please help. That's the place of, of real devotion. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you send your son to show us the way to live the life we could never live, die the death that should have been ours. And thank you for showing what true devotion was. You were in it right to the end. You were devoted so much to us that you died for us. I just want to give you honor today. I want to declare just how wonderful it is Jesus. I want to say we, we don't know how to be devoted to you, but we want to, want to learn. Will you teach us how to be fully devoted to you? Can we take examples like Mary Magdalene and others and be spurred on by those? But Jesus, will you teach us what it is to be truly devoted to you?